Welcome to episode 176 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome and thank you for joining us uh, for the last time until December. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. We're going to be interviewing today... Dave Itell, who's the CEO of Immunity, Inc., um, and joining us for the news roundup uh, uh, is a uh, whole set of um, uh, Steptoe lawyers, uh, Markham Erickson, who's head of the uh, firm's telecom practice, uh, Stephanie Roy, who is also a partner in the telecom practice, uh, Anthony Rappa, who you've heard from before, uh, uh, who specializes in sanctions and export control law. Uh, and Maury Schenk uh, uh, are all everything in London. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to step down to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We ought to jump right in. Um, there is cyber law in the news. The New York Times has been covering this all weekend. Uh, uh, it looks as though the House of Representatives has adopted a sanctions bill that is very close to but not quite the same as the Senate 92 bill, uh, uh, which uh, hit Russia pretty hard. Anthony, you reported on that a uh, couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, what uh, the, the, the Times is kind of saying, oh, they wussed out, they, uh, they, they made changes, they watered it down. Uh, uh, how much change is there in the, the House bill? Right. So the, this bill still hits pretty hard. Um, I would not say they wussed out. Uh, the real changes that they made are that the, the House seems to have made some concessions to industry, if anything, to make it more palatable to the administration. Right. Um, but the, the, the changes that they made were really around giving industry some time to wind down certain ah. operations okay. that are no longer going to be permitted with, uh, with Russia. Uh, they softened some of the financial restrictions, for example, uh, for the energy industry, there was going to be a restriction on dealing in their debt if it had a maturity of 30 days. Now that's 60 days. Oh, those, so, those okay. sorts so of this, changes. Is, this is really uh, tinkering around the edges. Tinkering around the edges. There's one other uh, change that they made with regard to the pipeline sanctions. The Nord Stream 2. With the Nord Stream 2. So that really got a lot of headlines the last time around. That is one of the few provisions in here that's discretionary. For the president. Uh, uh, now, okay. it, it was discretionary before, but now there's this new term saying that the president should consult with our allies before imposing these sanctions related to pipelines. And we know whatever what our that allies means. Are actually, actually, we don't know what our allies are going to say because some of them are opposed to Nord Stream 2 and some of them are in favor, but probably the ones who are in favor will be hopping up and down. That would be Angela Merkel, uh, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump's favorite European. She will want to be consulted, yes. Um, and speaking of our allies, uh, just in the news today, uh, I believe in Politico, uh, Politico claims to have reviewed a draft of EU guidance that may come out uh, in terms of how the EU might push back on these sanctions, because these sanctions are going to target companies outside the United States, probably in particular Europeans that are engaged in the business with Russia, and the EU is looking into... Uh, potentially uh, taking WTO action, which would be of extreme if that were to occur. But, uh, but slow. So, so I, I'm, I'm guessing uh, yeah, they could do that. It doesn't seem like a very good WTO case to me. 
There's a national security issue here. Uh, uh, it's an exercise of sanctions authority. I'm pretty sure that's covered already by uh, exceptions from the WTO. Now, the EU has also invoked, in the same draft Politico says they've reviewed, the EU has also invoked the specter of its blocking statute, which we have which, not... Which says, essentially, you're a European company who's been told not to invest, we hereby tell you that you'll be punished if you don't invest. That's exactly right. We have not seen that invoked anywhere except in the Cuba embargo context. Uh, so that just tells you how seriously and how well this is going over in Europe at the moment. Yeah, well, you know, as they, as they say, screw them if they can't take a joke. Uh, um, they're, they're, they're on the firing line with uh, Russia as well. Uh, and... Uh, um, my guess is there'll be some division within e the EU about how tough to get uh, in opposing sanctions that many of the uh, uh, Eastern European countries think are probably overdue. Right. Well, the tack they've taken, so the, the, the tack that they're taking here is that we have had unity on sanctions since 2014, and we've more or less taken the same approach, and now we're kind of going off on their own, and in some quarters in the EU, people are complaining about it. Yep. And, and um, well, the EU, they, they exist to complain about the United States. Uh, um, uh, meanwhile, um, as we're putting sanctions on, on Russia, I've been thinking, you know, our big sanctions programs are aimed mainly at individuals or companies. We're, we're no longer sanctioning the country as a whole. Um, and if I were Putin, I would, uh, I would ask, gee, is there anybody who's made a lot of money, who's really close to the government, that I could sanction in return? Maybe, uh, oh, I don't know, Ivanka or Jared or Donald Trump and his hotels. Uh, it seems to me that in an odd way, uh, uh, sanctions are less likely to, uh, are more likely to, to result in counter sanctions that could have some impact on decision makers here than in the old days when um, everybody was sort of living on a government salary. Right. So, you know, they, what Putin has been doing since 2014 has imposing these types of retaliatory sanctions. Um, it'd be interesting to see if he tried that here. Uh, for example, uh, one of the provisions in this bill targets any Russian government official involved in corruption relating to stealing state assets anywhere in the world. Uh, so you can see how the Russians might try to creatively retaliate uh, with those yes, with that sort I, of activity. they could say, well, if, you're, if your hotels benefit from your position in uh, government, we're going to sanction you. Uh, or they could just do, you know, it turns out that uh, uh, the uh, Trump hotels get hacked all the time for their credit card information, that they're, they're on hack number two or hack number three, uh, where their credit card in, uh, uh, numbers have been dumped. Um, it wouldn't be hard for the Russian hackers who did that to get hired to do something worse. Uh, you might be right about that. Speaking of which, I cannot, uh, you know, um, uh, profiles in Courage in Hollywood, uh, um, apparently they are rushing to take Vladimir Putin out of all their... Uh, uh, their movies, including Red Sparrow, which has Putin in the book, uh, uh, because they have 
drawn the lesson from the uh, North Korean hack on Sony that you should never piss off foreign leaders. Uh, and uh, so the only leaders that are going to piss off are ours, uh, and everybody else is going to be uh, off limits because they're afraid that uh, Vladimir Putin will have them hacked uh, uh, if he doesn't like the portrayal. I thought that was uh, a classic. Although, is, is the premise for this decision that... Or uh, the retaliation, or is it the fact that North Korea wasn't a market that they were really worried about distributing movies, and Russia has a population that might be interested in watching a, uh, a, a movie that, if they were denied distribution, would be problematic? So it's possible, although you know the Russian market is not enormous; it's not China. Uh, but and bigger than North Korea. It is bigger than North. <laughs> yes, it's true. No, I, I, I according to. Uh, uh, some security uh, CEO, uh, Ajay Arora, um, for a studio to release a movie about Putin that makes him look like a fool would be suicide. That's a certain way to be targeted. Uh, so I'm guessing that they really think they're going to be hacked. And, and, you know, it's not like uh, if you if you follow the DNC, um, most studios are not going to have much better security than that. No, but I'm, I am skeptical of the lesson of this fact that there was a moment after this where every uh, OVD and many movie theaters uh, decided to uh, run the movie uh, as a statement that they would not be intimidated, but first they uh, enacted internal countermeasures to ensure that they would be protected from those kind of hacks. So. Um, it feels a little bit more like a marketplace issue than a real true security issue to me. Could be. Uh, we'll see, Markham. Uh, uh, but, you know, if, 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 if the question is, uh, are there cowards in Hollywood, I think the, the question answers itself. Uh, I think the question uh, would be answered in the affirmative in any arena. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, um, okay. Um, and I, I, I should say this, this means that uh, the, one of the news items that we almost didn't cover is uh, Segway is hackable. It turns out you could hack Segways. You can you can drive people into uh, traffic. You can stop them cold and uh, sling them out into traffic. Uh, um, a, and so uh, Ben Wittes, who's uh, a co uh, uh, who has appeared many times on the the podcast, is also a Segway user and has challenged Vladimir Putin personally to. Um, Engage in a uh, judo match because he thinks he's a poser. Uh, Look, I, I think Ben's going to get hurt if he does that for real. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, he might he might find himself getting hurt in traffic uh, and then having Putin uh, 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 challenge him. Uh, uh, thank you, Dave. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, okay. Um, speaking of profiles and courage, uh, Silicon Valley, which. Uh, uh, by and large, you can assume hates everything the U.S. government does that uh, involves intelligence collection. Uh, uh, has kind of, uh, according to the recent stories, been laying low on Section 702 reform, and 702 is going to come up for a review before the end of the year. Um, there's a big debate in the policy community about what, what changes ought to be made. The administration has said the only change we need is we should stop putting this up for review every three or five years uh, and instead make it permanent. Uh, um, and uh, uh, Silicon Valley, it appears, is not making this a C-suite issue. Um, uh, Markham, uh, um, you're thinking about why they would not be pushing this issue? Well, they would be playing into the European sands, I think, if they're being the strategic, and I don't know if they are. but. The Europeans certainly want to link the renewal of 702 to the privacy shield mm -hmm. and uh, conflate the two issues. 
which of course is... Oh, they can come up with their own set of reforms that we have to enact on threat of having the data cut off. That's right. And, you know, look, it's hypocritical, as we know, because Europe doesn't regulate intelligence gathering to begin with, and so they punish us for our efforts to do so. Uh, but the last thing we would want is to connect 702 with the privacy shield. Oh, I think God, the yeah. more you see companies that have a lot of data that is going back and forth between Europe and the U.S. working on 702 and arguing for reforms, the more it plays into the Europeans' hand that they ought to be linked to the privacy shield. So I think anyone who's for renewal of 702 should not want those companies to take a high profile on this. Oh, I think that's right. Uh, and so I think uh, if it is strategic, it's the right move. You know, of course, they're, uh, this, some of the civil liberty groups uh, are not being strategic in thinking about this uh, because uh, the two issues are separate for them, whether Privacy Shield is renewed versus uh, their views about concerns with seven. My memory is EFF and maybe some of the other groups actually went over to uh, uh, Europe and lobbied against U.S. interests and against U.S. companies saying, yeah, stick it to them. Uh, uh, they, they, they're defying civil liberties uh, rules, uh, which... Uh, uh, you know, I guess they feel they can do that uh, without paying any, uh, having any consequence. Well, and we're we're in an asymmetrical policy battlefield here, where I hope the administration stands up to Europe a little bit more publicly to talk about uh, glass houses and uh, trying to criticize our intelligence gathering uh, when uh, we certainly work cooperatively with them and we know a little bit something about their intelligence gathering. Yeah, uh, let's let's hope so. Uh, and I, I should tell all of our listeners, I am still actively looking for a uh, uh, plaintiff uh, who wants to challenge uh, data exports from Europe to China uh, and to say, gee, if U.S. law isn't sufficiently protective of human rights law, why are you letting people send data back to China? Uh, that would be a lot of fun. If you're interested, uh, send us email. Um, okay. Uh, taking on uh, uh, foreign governments, uh, this is a profile in courage of sorts. Uh, Microsoft has effectively sued the GRU. Uh, 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 they, they, they say, oh, we don't know who's doing this, but it is, it is uh, the, uh, so, uh, the Russian uh, military intelligence unit. Uh, uh, Stephanie, uh, how's that work? Well, they have uh, broken out the scariest boogeyman in the closet. That's their attorneys. And uh, taking advantage of uh, trademark law uh, to the extent that the um, entities acting um, on these, these, these hack efforts and uh, spoofing efforts are using domain names uh, for their command and control purposes that reference Microsoft. Which would Microsoft, make sense, right? You, 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 right. You, you, you would, you would, these are their command and control, so there's a lot of traffic back and forth, and people are reading logs. If it says it's traffic to some Microsoft right. domain, the presumption they kind of is think, yeah, well, it, it's, tra okay. it, it's classic confusion, and they're relying on the confusion and, and the false association with the well-known, respected, and, and responsible company. Uh, that they presume Microsoft to be. This is the best use of aggressive trademark. Uh, well, you know, I've ever seen. I always argue for uh, the use of laws for social policy. Yeah. So uh, they're okay. using okay. trademark and. It's not going to have that big an impact. Yeah, that's no, what I was wondering. So Dave. it's the they they can only get to those wet domain sites that have already been registered in under aliases. This will be a default judgment because nobody has shown up to defend the practice. They're taking advantage of, um, you know, it's tra classic trademark dilution. 
and facilitated by the factors set forth in the Anti-Cyber Squatting um, Act in 1999 that kind of set forth these cyber squatting offense under the Lanham Act. And, um, but they can only get at those sites that are already registered, and new ones will pop up as fast as old ones are taken down or redirected to Microsoft. And, uh, again, they can only get at the ones that are very directly, usually using the whole word Microsoft, in their domain name. This might so, be the year of the trademark lawyer between this and the Redskins. Uh, <laughs> yes, we right. more about trademark than we ever have. So let me ask Dave, uh, uh, the, the impact of this is it, it inconveniences the GRU, and presumably uh, Microsoft can take over the domain and tell the people uh, whose command and control server had that name that they've been pwned. I mean, there's so many reasons why this is going to be a minor effect, one of which is they could, of course, blacklist these domains in Defender and not even bother making it a legal issue. Um, but in addition to that, like the only good reason to take over the domain is to send fake command and control back to get the thing to uninstall. But we're not allowed to do that yet because of you know, hackback laws being what they are. So if, if they're setting themselves up for that ability, then it makes sense. But other than that, it's such it's sort of like the lawyers were looking for something fun to do in the space, and they gave them this. Yeah, I, 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 I take your point. Although, I, you know, I think it would take some creative lawyering, but maybe not too much, to go to the judge and say, Judge, we'd like to go one step further now. Now that we've got the domain name, uh, we'd like to take the, the uh, to undo the harm that was done to people who were relying on our trademark uh, uh, by uninstalling the malware. Um, and, uh, you know, it's obviously the right thing to do. Uh, so you might be able to persuade a judge to stretch the law a little to do that. Uh, it'd be cool, but I, I don't see it happening, but right. it would be a clear step forward. Yep. Okay. Uh, this is the Europe bashing episode. Uh, uh, the European Court of Justice is now going to uh, uh, get a uh, set of questions from the Conseil d'État of France, the, the High Court of France, uh, asking them whether Google can be ordered to censor not just uh, uh, searches uh, um, where somebody's being uh, invoked their right to be forgotten, not just searches that come from uh, the European Union, but uh, searches that come from Washington, D.C. or Detroit, Michigan. Uh, um, and that issue is finally going to the European Court of Justice. Right, Maureen? Yeah, that's right. And as, you know, ever since the European Court of Justice decision in 2014, which established the right to be forgotten, since not long after that, the French Data Protection Authority, the CNEO, has been pushing hard for this rule pushing Google on it, and uh, it's now at the Conseil d'État, and one of the ways, one of the common ways that the European Court of Justice gets issues is referrals from national courts. Um, that has now happened, and they have to decide the issue, so probably sometime in the next six months to a year, I would say, um, well, there will be an argument, so it will be even longer than that. But we will get an answer at some point to the ECJ's rule on this. My guess is they've been extremely aggressive on privacy issues, and we may get the same answer out of them that the Canadian Supreme Court reached uh, last month, that uh, Google can be ordered by local courts to take global action, which obviously 
produces real issues of conflict of law. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I, my, my shorthand is uh, this is a this is a court that hates the United States, and they will be glad to to, to tell us what to think and what we can read. Uh, um, uh, so uh, that's my bet too. Uh, uh, the question is, what's the U.S. going to do about it? Um, you know, we uh, we could pass a law that says you can sue foreign governments that uh, interfere with uh, rights that would otherwise be protected by the First Amendment if the U.S. government. Uh, tried to uh, trench on them, uh, that would be fun. Uh, but well, to say they hate the United States might be a little bit much, Stuart. I mean, they uh, there's a different view of privacy rights in Europe, and um, they're trying to enforce them globally, just like the U.S. has uh, different views on certain things and tries to enforce them globally, uh, as in the Russia sanctions we were just talking about. Yeah, so, I don't know. I, you know, the, they, they, they reached the Schrems decision uh, uh, by skipping any fact-finding and relying for their facts on a Guardian article that was wrong. Uh, that doesn't strike me as uh, the kind of thing that an impartial judge would do uh, easily. Uh, um, is, but yeah, you may be right. Uh, uh, let's see what they, what they produce. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, not letting people read stuff, uh, the Ninth Circuit is also not letting people read stuff. Uh, uh, Markham, uh, they upheld gag orders. Well, first of all, let me note an irony that you've been out to uh, the Silicon Valley companies that the ones that challenge the government on these gag orders, essentially non-disclosure uh, requirements. You can't walk into a building without signing a non-disclosure agreement to the minute you step into the building. I'm sorry, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there is some irony about that, but putting that aside, um, uh, this is a case where the Ninth Circuit upheld the current scheme. Uh, as not violating the First Amendment. Uh, it was a challenge to the gag orders that frequently accompany a national security security letter. They were from 2013 and 2011. The law was changed, of course, in 2015 in two significant ways. One is it allows companies now, and I think batches of 250, to disclose that they received gag orders, or national security letters, rather. And secondly, there's a process by which the Attorney General must review uh, these national security letters and gag orders, and uh, when it's appropriate, terminate them. So there's a, an end to those uh, two things. And it turns out both of those things were very important for the Ninth Circuit to say that despite the fact that there was a facial challenge, that this was a content-based restriction on speech, um, that this was a narrowly tailored uh, remedy, a narrow, 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 narrowly tailored requirement that they not speak about the gag orders in uh, the specific way that the plaintiffs were challenging them, because you are allowed to disclose the gag orders, uh, and they're not indefinite, uh, theoretically, because the Attorney General uh, is required to review and potentially uh, uh, eliminate uh, the ongoing nature of the gag order. Yeah. Uh, well, the one thing I thought was interesting is, uh, and, and I think Twitter's got a case, uh, apparently not this one, uh, that's probably going to be affected by this decision, uh, making the argument, well, this is content-based discrimination, right? Uh, uh, I, if, I, if, I could, if I said nothing or if I said I don't have a, a gag order, I could do that. Uh, uh, but if I want to say that I have a gag order involving a particular person, you're telling me that's content I can't talk about, uh, which struck me as a perversion of, but a clever one of the, uh, the content-based regulation. And the court more or less, if I remember right, says, uh, you know, this really isn't that kind of content discrimination, and so we're doubtful that that analysis applies.
But even so, they did decide it was a content-based restriction and still upheld it. So in some ways, it's a stronger case for the government that they were able to take that Ninth Circuit decision and apply that in a forward-looking way. All right. Maury, kind of quickly, two stories. The Dutch police have reeled in a bunch of people by setting up a fake dark market just before the feds closed down another one. So they got a whole bunch of new customers who now are completely compromised. And China has started taking down images while you're trying to send them from your phone, which I thought was pretty remarkable technology. Yeah. On the first one, it was an existing dark net site, Hansonet. And when they took down one called Alphabay, a lot of people went to Hansonet. And it turned out it had already been taken over by Dutch authorities. And we're seeing more and more of this, which I think raises two issues. Some of the people may have a defensive entrapment, which is probably not a big deal. The authorities are happy to take that risk. And the other is how long should authorities be involved in keeping illegal trade like this going? And judgment calls need to be made on that. On the China one, yeah, I think it's fascinating. Clearly, the two huge China messaging services, WeChat, known as WeChat in China, and China Weibo, have the government deeply involved in them. And they're showing that they're able to stop images as they go. They must have some pretty serious AI deployed on these networks to recognize the images, which shows a remarkable degree of access to the network, which they must have the grant to continue to operate in China. Yeah. And meanwhile, Europe sees no evil, hears no evil, speaks no evil about data transfers to China, including on WeChat, including images that are probably getting deleted as they cross the Chinese border. It's remarkable. Okay. I may have criticized or differed with you on whether the ETJ hates the United States, but I agree there's a great hypocrisy in the view towards transfers to the U.S. versus some other very repressive countries. I've seen European Commission reports on this in which they say, well, obviously it wouldn't be practical to apply the adequacy standard to the Chinese government. Well, duh. So why are you applying it to other people if you're not applying it to what is probably going to be the second largest recipient of data over the next 10 years from Europe? All right. Well, I will save that rant for another day if I haven't already let it out for a walk. Because I want to get to Dave Attell, who is the founder and CEO of Immunity Inc., former NSA security scientist and somebody who has thought pretty hard about the technical side of some of the policy issues that we're focused on. So without trying to pick an order, Dave, let me just ask you to comment on some of the stories of the last couple of days. Kaspersky basically has gotten the black mark from the U.S. government. They may not be completely out of U.S. markets because they may have been embedded in a bunch of software, but the signal is clear and very public. 
what's your sense on this? The, the worry we're hearing is, oh, the Russians might retaliate, they could throw American companies out, or uh, this means that we're going to break up this global Internet thing and instead have a bunch of uh, blocks, uh, and you just have to decide which block you're in because uh, you won't be able to use or rely on uh, software from other blocks. Uh, um, what's your sense about where this is going and how justified the Kaspersky uh, uh, move was by the U.S.? Well, you know, I, I remember listening to you on a previous podcast where you said, you know, this this is a market that's already pretty balkanized, and you know, 100% agree with you on that. The uh, the one of the side effects of getting really involved with the cybersecurity policy world is I ended up on the the export control portion of the Commerce Department doing uh, on ISTAC, which is their technical advisory committee. And I remember one of the other guys was, you know, he's basically a, there's a few lobbyist style people on the board, and he's like, you know, I had someone come to me, and he's like, look, I want you to help me with my PR. And he's like, well, I looked at this problem, and there's two kinds of things. There's there's problem problems, and there's PR problems. And what this guy had was a problem problem, and there was nothing I could do for him. Uh, and you think Kaspersky had a problem problem? If they've got a problem problem. I don't think this is something where Eugene Kaspersky can go out and testify in front of Congress and move things over. I think uh, people have looked at it in a classified way that I certainly am not read in on and said, you know, this is not a company that is operating independently. And it could be any number of things. I think people have ignored the human intelligence side that Kaspersky could offer the Russian government. I mean, people have completely forgotten that they throw a giant conference and invite everyone to it, right. that they also own Post, which is, uh, and was for a number of years, the foremost um, sort of news center for cybersecurity news. Uh completely owned by Kaspersky, which is a weird thing for an AV company to own, if you think about it. Um, but, of course, very valuable for, you know, various human intelligence reasons. So, you know, there's a lot here, and I think it's going to get much bigger. I don't think this is one of those things that's just a blip. And I also think this is how deterrence works in the modern age. I think you get caught crossing the line, you get kicked out of the market. I think that's just the way it has to be. Yeah, it, uh, you know, lots of people like uh, Eugene, but uh, it, uh, it is sort of hard to believe that the Russians can't make him do what, what the Russians want him to do, and he's got sensors installed in all kinds of um, uh, networks because that's what AV systems do these days. Well, the funniest part was when they offered to open up the source code, and I'm like, what are you going to see when you do that? It's a rootkit. It's by <laughs> definition that it's for. So, it's a root like cut that phones has, home and gets updates every, you know, uh, two days. <laughs> it's perfect. Great. Well, so you haven't really, I mean, these are the sort of things about, you know, I've, all, I've actually been trying to propose a, you know, slightly greater technical focus in the policy world. And I think cleaning up some of these ideas, you can just sort of open source code to, to validate, you know, what the intent of a piece of software uh, is one of those things that I think we need to recognize as sort of smoke and hot air instead of um, a definitive topic. You, you know, know yeah. It, very it, little. It, in fact, it's, that's really true for for almost everything in networks these days. It's all maintained and updated and almost has to be because of security reasons. Uh, uh, but you have to you have to trust the company that does the updates. You're not going to be able to uh, 
um, read the source code because it's going to say, and here's how we are we plan to change the code that's running on your machine without telling you. Exactly, and it, I mean something like an AV operates almost underneath the operating system as well. Right, so, because it's, it's trying to avoid the operating system seeing and throwing it out, and then it wants to catch a lot of this stuff before it can take advantage of holes in the operating system. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's a very interesting problem because we also want to say, what is it we, the U.S. government, won't do that will let Russians buy McAfee or, you know, Symantec? What is it that we're saying we're not going to hit? So I think, it, I mean, it makes you also look at yourself and your own practices. And, you know, despite the fact that all those are classified, I still think it's worth thinking about. Well, one of the things I noticed uh, that surprised me when I was reading this hacking of the Segway story, turns out uh, Segway's which were offering all kinds of social um, options on the, you know, so you could you could see who was nearby you, uh, who was also riding a, a Segway. Uh, it's a, it's owned by a Chinese company, and all of this data, I'm sure, is stored in uh, uh, in China. Um, so if you wanted to follow uh, Ben Wittes around, the Russians should just, uh, you know, ask the Chinese where he is. Um, okay, uh, let me. You've been you've been. Um, really digging into a um, Belfer Center paper that came out and that was part of the fight over VEP. And, and the, the this is kind of a re rebuttal to a RAN story, a RAN paper that came out uh, uh, earlier in the summer. Um, and the whole notion is how big a deal is it if um, the National Security Agency keeps a bunch of zero days and doesn't tell people about them. Uh, uh, are they going to get found anyway, uh, or are they going to stay uh, kind of no bus, nobody but us can use it uh, for a long time? And uh, uh, the story that came out of Rand was uh, some of these bugs will stick around for 10 years, and in fact forever, until there's an upgrade that the, the gets rid of them by mistake. Um, and uh, uh, this Belfer Center uh, paper takes a very different view and says that something like 20% of the, uh, uh, the zero days are going to get found by somebody else very quickly. Well, I mean, let me just say that, you know, the reason they're so different is because the Belfer paper is completely falsified and should probably be retracted. Well, so, really? It, it, I went and, you know, like after it came out, I took a cursory look at the data that what they were really nice enough to post. And of course, this is one of the main critiques of the RAND paper is that you can't really look at the data by definition. Right. And so you're sort of relying on their researchers to be honest about what they saw. And that's not really how science should be done. Um, but when it comes to the, the Belfer paper, they were, they were pretty honest about their data and sense of they published on GitHub some spreadsheets that said exactly which bug IDs they were counting as part of their methodology. So I went and I downloaded their spreadsheet and I started digging into them. And for the Android data, it's pretty hard to tell what's a true and false positive from the spreadsheet because you, if you don't have Android secret access to the bug database, you can't really correlate it. But for the Chromium data, it's pretty open. So you can go into the Chromium data and you can kind of look at all the vulnerabilities and see what, which ones they said were duplicates and whether or not they're actually duplicates. And so far, it's about a 100% false positive rate. 
I don't think any of the authors of the article looked at any of the data and tried to say, is this actually a working methodology? And if you look at the data that they did publish, there's one outlier, which is OpenSSL, which has a much tighter methodology for how they generated the data and has a much lower number than all the other numbers. Yeah, that was down so in the, the single digits. It's in the single It's in the margin of error, basically. So uh, the data I was able to look at was basically falsified. And, you know, I've been talking to them about it. I've talked to all the authors and the Belfer Center head director. I talked to the head of Chrome Security, and he says, yes, this paper um, does not accurately represent any of our data. The real number is basically zero. Um, and so this is, I mean, I think this is a major issue with policy sort of papers in general, which is that if you don't have a deep technical understanding of vulnerabilities themselves, it is very hard to talk about them intelligently. And the RAND paper agreed with most vulnerability, like, expert gut feelings on how this stuff worked. The the papers coming out of Belfer, you know, there's a, they have another author who's like a, you know, a, a law student writing vet papers who didn't understand anything about them. Uh, they have this paper, and, and basically their are opinion pieces with fake data. <laughs> well, you know, it's a much more persuasive opinion paper if you can attach data that says that you're right. I guess so, but I think it sort of really drives home the, the ideology behind these things and that they're trying to still make policy based on, you know, by picking their conclusion first and then just finding data that fits it. And in this case, I'm just I'm just really lucky that we were able to catch them out so easily. And I'm not sure what they're going to do because they have a black hat talk coming up this week. And honestly, the paper is so bad and so easily discoverably bad that they should retract it. And I just I don't know if they will. Yeah. So that's where that stands. So, I mean, so the, you know, the, the, for uh, people who are in the policy business, uh, the only real punishment is people start laughing at all your studies and are ignoring them or, uh, you know, mocking your uh, your presentations, not inviting you to be a witness. But those things could happen as if, if there's a fair amount of attention to this. Uh, but I agree with you. It's not like there's going to be a bunch of journal papers uh, debunking this because uh, the only people who really want to debunk it are people who think the VEP process is... Uh, uh, Overrated uh, and uh, ought to be cut back or left as is rather than uh, um, tightened up. Well, I mean, I'm happy to talk in general about the VEP process because I think it has other issues beyond, you know, problems in this paper. But the it's it's just very discouraging to see that there's sort of a group of people who had no technical background proposing the VEP. And everyone with technical background is saying it doesn't seem to fit the process as, you know, reality is interpreted. It's sort of like the climate denier science of policy. Yeah, no, but it's it's not actually much different from the people who said, 
oh, these vulnerabilities, they're like weapons. We should have export controls on them. We should have all kinds of uh, um, negotiations over reducing the harm that they do and uh, mutual assured destruction needs to be part of the analysis so that uh, everybody will surrender their weapons. So the whole notion of treating them like weapons, whether you're talking about export controls or negotiations with other states, is warped by an analogy that probably doesn't work if you understand the technology. You know, and I spend many, many hours dealing with the Wapenaar arrangement issues, and, you know, they, they very much are written for alchemists, and we're trying to sort of parse the wordings and what they might have meant, and even, you know, no one really knows, and uh, this was honestly, this is something our State Department should have stopped in its tracks when it first came up and just didn't. Now, they were, um, they were mesmerized as well, I think, by the analogy. Um, and then somebody used some penetration testing tool to attack a, an embassy someplace, and they said, this is outrageous, we should prevent this at all costs, and, and the cost is going to be staggering. So hopefully they'll they'll come to their senses eventually. Um, this administration should be a little uh, more hard-nosed about it. Uh, but I actually, this kind of takes us to this other issue that's also kicking around where people want to say, oh, since these are like weapons, we can apply the international humanitarian law and the law of armed conflicts to them, and we can start saying that certain kinds of cyber attacks violate um, uh, international law. Um, and the uh, and this is this has been a theme, unfortunately, inside the U.S. government for ten years. We've been self-limiting on the basis of this analogy for a long time. Uh, and I see one of the guys who did that, Mike Schmidt, had a paper out that uh, uh, said that he thought that NotPetya was an example of a war crime using cyber weapons because it was it struck so indiscriminately and wiped out so much data. And, and you had a, 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 some thoughts on that, if I remember. Well, I mean, Mike is a super genius lawyer who has been one of the people sort of, I won't say behind, but definitely strongly involved with the Tallinn uh, documents who have been trying to stretch international law to fit over cyber like a child suit over a gorilla. Um, there's, and, and the thing is, none of this stuff works when you actually, you know, when the rubber hits the road. Indiscriminate is, you know, it's one of their key phrases. It's a little keyword. It means very specific things. Though. Uh, but when I look at worms in particular, whether or not a when I calculate what damage a worm is going to do or how far it's going to spread, I'm doing that based on a very careful model of the Internet that only I have. So you as an outside observer may not realize what my target set really is and what kind of damage I'm trying to cause or even what effect I'm trying to have out in the world. Uh, and I may have multiple versions of that worm, some of which look quite innocuous, some of which are quite dangerous, some of which do different, you know, have exfiltration options, for example. So I think, you know, all of, this is not the same as the world he's used to, which has sort of a, you know, I'm not going to say they're clear-cut because they're definitely not, but a much more defined line between indiscriminate and discriminate. And I wanted to point that out before he walked too far down this, you know, let's try to attach international law like some sort of leech 
to some other aspect of cyber. Yeah, I no, I, I, look, he is a smart guy. He's been on the program. He had a, a, a great discussion of talent, too. Oh, uh, uh, but um, I suspect that he is giving us the same legal analysis that he applied inside the government when he was asked to review cyber operations uh, uh, involving the United States government, which means that when he says, I think this is a violation of international law by the Russians, presumably, um, he probably said the same thing to the U.S. government if they tried to do something similar, which means that, uh, and yet, as you know, uh, the, it's very hard to say you've been disproportionate or um, a, a caused uh, uh, indiscriminate uh, loss. Everything is over civilian infrastructure at this point. Yeah, so. and there's no, you know, there's nobody dead. So you kind of, it's kind of hard to say this is indiscriminate. It, it is, and you know, I think the Russians have a very good point when they say all your lawyers ever try to do is gerrymander everything you do to be okay and everything we do to not be okay, and we have to be very careful that that's not in fact what we're doing. So yeah. sometimes, you know, the interpretations of international law get very sticky when applied to technical things that they were never, ever meant to cover. But there's a whole section in Talon 1.0 about cyber booby traps, for example, which just made me laugh. And cyber 2.0 is like reading, reading like an ancient religious text where half the people disagree and half the people agree. I mean, if you've ever done Talmudic studies, that's what it is. Yes, yes. I, 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 I've, I've been to the uh, the Western Wall and listened to people. Uh, it's uh, it's impressive, but uh, also you kind of you kind of say, really, this is a lot of energy being put into this uh, yeah. uh, debate. And yeah. that's what we should keep in mind is that, you know, there should be some sort of really attached to it all where we're sort of a little bit less belief that we can take our old structures and apply them directly. Did you buy the uh, uh, did you buy the, uh, the the Booz Allen uh, uh, the suggestion that this was really a uh, a kind of a very loud effort to destroy the forensic data that would have uh, pointed the finger at uh, the Russians for earlier intrusions? I I don't. I don't think we're ever going to know what the real aim was. And I think it's very interesting that we think there's only been one worm and that we think this is maybe the first one. I mean, there's a lot here we just don't know. I think we should get much more involved with defending Ukraine. I think we need to extend the security umbrella to our allies. Yeah. I mean, that's, we're not sure how to do that yet, and we have a lot of allies, and they need a lot of umbrellas. And it's really already pretty raining, and everyone's pretty wet. So... So, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure we have yet extended our security umbrella to the Fortune 500. Uh, uh, and this is, this is why, you know, I keep coming back to the idea that we need to, you know, let the people who have those resources, have, have the resources in the private sector, do something other than just hunker behind their walls and, 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 uh, um, try to stop attacks after the attacker's gotten over the wall. Um, and I, I'm heartened by the fact that uh, uh, there is now actually an act, the ACDC Act, uh, that uh, uh, would authorize a certain amount of investigative uh, hacking back. You've, you've thought some about this. Uh, what's your sense about what we could do to open up those resources without uh, uh, turning it into a war of all against all? Well, I think that the ACDC Act was in many ways sort of a, almost, it was a very small, almost a patch to the CFAA from what I could tell. Right. And 
I think what we would probably need would be something much bigger and, and therefore much more painful to write up, which allows the private industry to sort of fund efforts that help them and then allows uh, almost a specialized penetration testing private investigatory force to take those efforts on without giving the data back to private industry. So you need a way for U.S. Steel to be able to hire a penetration testing company to look at China Steel and say that yes or no, there was in fact economic espionage that took place without violating our own norms on how we expect that sort of thing to happen. And I mean, for so much policy work that we look at, you really want to sort of go into what we know works. So, you know, instead of looking at massive state-to-state actions, enormous building processes, we already know that penetration testing is is a built-in process that works. And I think there's things we can build up on those sort of smaller things uh, and more technical things as opposed to going, you know, let's, let's draw some big principles together that we can all agree on as an entire global, you know, nation alliance. So go that, when you say that. penetration testing, you're talking about non-consensual penetration testing, which other people might call yeah. hacking. Um, but regulated, I guess, by DHS in this case, you yeah. know, as much as of DHS, but, and everyone loves to use them as sort of a bag of, you know, everyone can have some. Uh, <laughs> That's right. This is sort of one of those areas where they could do good by sort of you know, both taking the data on and taking it further into a sanctions effort or some sort of, you know, law effort uh, versus, um, you know, a private industry trying to sue and do it all on their own. I think you don't really want to deputize private industry to just go do willy-nilly what they want. You want to give them scope and then um, allow that scope to be funded by private industry. Yeah, maybe so, so. And, and, and regulated in some fashion by the government to make sure that uh, right. it doesn't get out of hand. Uh, I'm not sure I would go as far as you as, in saying that they ought to be breaking into other companies and looking for stolen data. I always thought that that at least we could leave to um, the FBI and NSA uh, if we could produce the evidence that says we really think this is where it went for these reasons. This is what they stole. These, this is the priority the government is attached to it. These are the companies that it is told have to carry out that priority. That's where you're going to find it if it was stolen. Uh, then I think um, NSA could, could hack those companies uh, on a uh, 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 using governmental authority to find the stuff that, uh, uh, that the people think has been stolen. But I think the, the investigative work and uh, um, going to at least the command and control centers, uh, consensually or non-consensually, watching the hackers, tracking them back uh, 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 to their home, coming up with their infrastructure, compromising their infrastructure. Those are things that would be a little more likely to, uh, or less likely to create a giant fuss or to create a bad precedent uh, uh, and something that would produce evidence that then the government could use to gather intelligence and create sanctions. Um, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that uh, it's part of the debate now, and uh, Representative Graves de- deserves credit for, for starting that uh, that debate. I think the scale is a hard part of this problem. I yes. mean, there's one NSA, one FBI, and, and they are very busy already. Uh, and I think if we can't take advantage of the workforce that's sort of external to the government agencies 
and I don't just mean the technical workforce, but managing these sorts of projects is very difficult. So, yeah, government, and, look, the government hires people, it has contractors working uh, the, uh, to do hacking, in fact, uh, and uh, um, if somebody else were paying those contractors and the government still had the authority to tell them what they could and couldn't do, not much would have changed. Uh, and so you could easily imagine uh, circumstances where... Um, a large bank would say uh, to uh, NSA or uh, the FBI, uh, oh, we have a project. Here's our project uh, that we think requires uh, a set of, of hackers. Uh, we'll pay for it. Um, and you find three hacking firms that you think are acceptable and appropriately disciplined, and you watch them, uh, and we'll take bits from them and uh, then pay them to do the job. I think I think that's a much I think that that's not what this act is. I think that's a good framework for this. And the only sort of operational security sort of flap that goes into that is that you want to make sure that you're using tool chains which are special for this purpose and not the same tool chains you use for your counterintelligence and your you know standard signals intelligence work. Exactly. So I mean that's that's I think a big part of how to set up these structures. But I think you know the time to set these structures up is now. We're sort of in desperate need of a better way to do this. And we've been shying away from a lot of different actions, you know. I think the Obama years, we sort of marched in place on a lot of these very important things for, for a while. And, uh, you know, I think some of this stuff, you know, is a little bit late, to be honest. We may have missed our window on some of these big norms creation activities. Yeah. Uh, so I, I look forward I think you may be right, uh, uh, but um, look, in international law, uh, coming <laughs> coming up late is uh, standard operating procedure. Right? Um, so, Dave, um, you are at Dave Itel, A-I-T-E-L, uh, on Twitter, and you're prolific on Twitter. Uh, um, do you have any speeches, events, papers coming up that you want to tell our listeners about? You know, I'm going to be in, in Finland talking about uh, cybersecurity at a conference called T2 there. I like some of the smaller conferences better than the sort of big mega conferences. Um, but, you know, anyone who wants to reach out to me and get engaged on a very long discussion of the vulnerability equities process is, of course, welcome to do so. I always recommend people hit my little blog up. I have a blog called Cybersec Politics, which is pretty popular in this policy area but is, of course, sometimes a little bit um, hardcore for those who are used to the policy world and don't want their feelings hurt. Uh, so very accessible. Love this kind of conversation. This is this is great. And Finland in July is terrific. Uh, of course, there are no Finns there. They've all gone to the countryside. So, uh, uh, But the, uh, uh, the white knights are terrific. Uh, so uh, I envy you. All right. Uh, thanks to Dave Itell. Uh, thanks to uh, Markham Erickson, Stephanie Roy, uh, Anthony Rappa, and Maury Schenk for their contributions. This has been Episode 176 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, we're getting lots of suggestions for guest interviewees. Uh, really do appreciate it. Uh, uh, and if they come on the show, we will uh, uh, send you a Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, I'm also thinking... Uh, that we might want to start having uh, some of these uh, before a live studio audience, inviting people who want to come in to uh, uh, the uh, Steptoe's DuPont Circle office uh, so that we can, they can actually listen to uh, the interviews. Um, we might 
you know, one idea that I'm thinking is that maybe as 702 renewal comes up, uh, um, we should have a series of discussions or debates or whatever you want to call them uh, uh, about various proposals to change 702. Uh, um, so if you have proposals that you think um, uh, deserve that uh, and an advocate for them, uh, or if you think that the people who are uh, trying to change 702 uh, are whacked, um, let us know, and uh, we may uh, invite you to be on the uh, uh, the podcast uh, later in the fall when we come back from our uh, one-month uh, hiatus in August. Uh, uh, when we do, we will also have John Yu, uh, 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 who is famous as my debate partner, as well as the author of some of the post-9-11 uh, OLC memos that uh, uh, the left loves to hate, uh, and Jeremy Rapkin discussing their upcoming book, Striking Power, How Cyber Robots and Space Weapons Change the Rules for War. Uh, uh, we hope that you'll join us for that episode and many others when we return in the fall to once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.